through our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are our living hope. You are our only hope. And this morning, we rejoice in the hope of your glory, knowing that such hope will not put us to shame because your love has been poured into our hearts through your Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We recognize that we would be undone were it not for the fact that you are a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, steadfast in your love toward your people. And in your steadfastness, you did not forsake us, but instead, Father, you sent your Son, Jesus. You accepted his sacrifice on the cross on our behalf, and you gave us a hope and a future beyond imagining. We confess that it is all too easy to lose hope in this life and in this world. And we ask that today you would renew and strengthen our hope, not in ourselves, not in our own abilities, but in your strong, mighty hand. Help us to know that your plans are not frustrated, that your purposes cannot be thwarted, and that in the end, your word and your kingdom will stand unshaken and immovable. Until that day, help us to live lives guarded by that hope, that we would walk in humble confidence and trust in you, loving one another, loving the strangers around us, loving those who would consider us enemies, and in so doing, loving you. You are a good God, and it is in you and you alone that we place our hope. This morning, because you are king and because your reign cannot be stopped, we come to you on behalf of our brothers and sisters and our sister churches who are gathering this morning in our city, throughout our country, and around the world. And we pray that you would be with them as well. Help them to likewise be faithful witnesses to you wherever you have placed them. And for us all, help us to remember that in this life and in this world, you have not called us to be a conquering army. You have not promised us worldly success, but you have called us to be ambassadors of your kingdom, entrusted with a message of reconciliation, that you have called us to take up our cross, to follow you, even were it to cost us our very lives. And help us to remember that in your kingdom, to lose our lives is to find them. And that though darkness may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. And now as we come to the preaching of your word, I tremble at the task before me because it is beyond me. But I ask that you would bless it and that everything that comes out of my mouth would be of you. And if it is not, you would silence me where I stand. I pray for all who will hear this morning, for those who do not know you, that you would save them. For those who do, that your word would sink the deepest roots into our lives, that it would bear much fruit in them, and where our lives are different from or fall short of it, that we would be the ones who are changed. It is as ever, in the great name of your Son, and by the power of your Holy Spirit that we ask 
how that we plead, Father, for these things. Amen. Well, good morning. If you haven't already done so, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. If this is your first time at Redeemer, if you're visiting with us, let me say especially welcome to you. We're so glad that you are here today. If you are new to Redeemer, you're joining us at a little bit of a unique time in our preaching. Our normal practice here is to work our way verse by verse through a book of the Bible, and we're going to get back into that in the new year. But for the last couple of months and for the rest of this year, we've taken a little bit of a different approach to focus on an idea that really runs through all of Scripture, and that is the kingdom of God. And over the last couple of weeks, we've tightened that even further to focus very specifically on the king himself. Why have we chosen to do this? Well, first of all, because it is a deeply biblical idea, and we want to know what God's word has to say about these things. But second, particularly as we find ourselves in this Advent season, the reality of the kingdom of the God, the kingdom of God and of the king himself should be a source of boundless hope for us. And if if it hasn't been for you, it is our hope that you would see today that it is. Because it's hope not just for eternity, though it is certainly that, but hope for, for right now. Right now, this day, wherever you are, we want it to be hope for you. And, and hope is a great source of encouragement and a, and a spur to action. So we want you to see that today, to be filled with and motivated by it. And before we dig into today's specific text, I think it is good to remind ourselves of what we have learned of the kingdom and of the king thus far. As Jamie has said, there are so many things we could have chosen to focus on about this, but we've tried very hard to focus on the things that scripture is most clear about. It's very concrete. We can cling to it. So what do we look at? We saw first in the Lord's prayer that the kingdom of God is something Jesus tells us we should desire, long for, pray for. And then we saw in the story of Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter three, that he tells Nicodemus that the The subjects, the citizens of the kingdom of God will be those who have been born again. And that this new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. And after that, we looked at Jesus' interaction with Pilate when he was on trial. And you remember what he told Pilate? That that his kingdom is not of this world. That it will not advance through physical strength or geopolitical might. And it's going to look quite different from what people expected. And that's going to be important. We want to hang on to that for later this morning. And then we learned that the kingdom will be built by the Spirit of God, working through the people of God to take the message of God to the ends of the earth. And then we took a couple of weeks and looked at different parts of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus told us that the blessings of the kingdom may look very different than what you expect, but that you can seek it, you can pursue it, you can come after it without worry because the king will provide what you need to do what he has called you to do. And in the last couple of weeks, we again have turned to looking at the king himself. And in that time, we've seen from this text, as Stephen pointed out, we've, we've stayed right here. We saw that Jesus is the prophet. He's the one to whom we must listen. And we saw that he is the priest. He's the one who stands between us and God. And he is the one whose sacrifice makes possible our redemption. And so it is all of those things that brings us once again back to today's text, where we consider Not only is Jesus the prophet, not only is he the priest, though he is those things, but we're going to see today that he is the king. And where do we get that? We don't want you to just take our words for any of this. We want you to see it in the text. We want you to see where God has revealed these things to us. So look back again at this morning's passage with me, because it says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the 
faithful witness, there's prophet, the firstborn of the dead, there's priest, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, if you are the ruler of kings on earth, what does that make you? Well, as Revelation 19 will call him, it makes you king of kings and Lord of lords. In fact, there is a kingly thread that runs through this whole passage this morning. It begins there with the fact that he is ruler of kings on earth, but there's more. Look down further because it goes on in verse six to say, he has made us a kingdom. And then it says to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And that whole thought line is rich with meaning. And so this morning, I want us to unpack that together because the whole of scripture is going to tell us what it means for Jesus to be ruler of kings on earth. And I think you're going to find that to be extraordinary because it was Jesus himself who told us that all of scripture testifies to who he is and what he has done. So today, we want to know truly what it means for Jesus to be ruler of kings on earth. We wanna know truly what it means for him to make us a kingdom. And we wanna know what it means for him to receive glory and dominion forever and ever. But if you wanted to sum it up, the, the, the whole takeaway from today is gonna to be this. Jesus is king and we can and should trust him and follow him and hope in him. So that's where we're going this morning. So let's consider these things together. And that's our first point is trust the king. Trust the king. Once again, verse five tells us Jesus is ruler of kings on earth. Now in this passage, that's just asserted as kind of a raw fact. So why begin here? Why do we start with the idea that in Jesus being king, why is it important to know that we could trust him? Well, first, because if we can't trust him, then everything else falls apart. And in a sense, if he is not trustworthy, then really what's the point of all this that we're doing? But second, I think it is important to begin here because from the very beginning, it has been at this exact point that Satan has tried to attack the king and his people. What do I mean? Well, let's go all the way back to the beginning, back to the garden. You see, it was there that Jesus created everything and God declares his creation very good. Having done so, he gives Adam and Eve one command. You probably remember it. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, then Satan shows up in the form of a talking serpent. Early point of application. If you're confronted with a talking snake, you don't engage in conversation, you run. <laughs> Things have gone terribly wrong. You run, but they didn't. So what, what's important for us this morning is what Satan says there. Because you remember, he asked the question that he's been asking ever since. Did God really say? And so Eve tells him what, what God said. And he says in response to that, he says, you will not surely die. In fact, God knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll become like him. He doesn't want you to do that. And so what that question really boils down to is this, is what the king says true and is it good? And that, that tension, that doubt, that struggle has been at the center of humanity's relationship with God ever since. You know, I can't say for sure, but maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe that's your struggle. Maybe that's the question you have is, is Jesus really trustworthy? Is he really and truly good? And if you are, if that's where you're at today, that's what you're asking, that's okay. We're so glad that you're here. Please come, please keep asking these questions because it is our hope that in our time together this morning, you'll see not only is he trustworthy, but he is the highest and the greatest good. And how do we do that? How do we go about examining these things? Well, there are a number of ways we can approach this but I think it will serve as well to focus on and reflect on two things. One is what God says in response to Adam's and Eve's sin. And then second, 
what he's been doing about it since then. So first, in response to their sin, he could have, and he would have been absolutely in his right to just crush them, destroy them, and be done with them. He could have, but he doesn't. What does he do? Well, he curses them, but in the context of cursing them and the serpent, he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, without the benefit of the rest of scripture, that sounds really just weird. What what does that possibly mean? But don't miss it because in response to sin, in response to their doubt of his goodness, of the king's trustworthiness, rather than destroying them, God promises them blessing. He says, one day redemption is coming. And that's going to be the pattern of how God relates to his people going forward. It literally changes the course of history. Because second, we then see him go on to fulfill this blessing, to keep this promise through everything. Where do we get that idea? Well, scripture in Acts chapter 17 says this. It says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. So we will see that the ruler of kings on earth has governed literally all of history, all the nations, all the empires, all these things for the purpose of keeping that first promise. And in seeing that, I hope you will see, yes, we can trust the king. Now to do this, I wanna take eight minutes. It's very specific, I know, eight minutes. We're gonna do a very, very high level overview of how the king has continually related to, protected, and directed his people, especially in the face of their just continued sin and doubt and rebellion against him. So strap in, we're gonna cover a lot of time very, very quickly here. So what does humanity do with this blessing, with this promise from God? Well, in the days of Noah, we learn this. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So good job, humans. Well done. Just like with Adam and Eve, when God would have been well within his rights to just destroy them and be done, we see that once again with Noah, he takes action to preserve his people, even in the face of our continued doubt and sin against him. Then we come later to the story of what we know as the Tower of Babel. And you have to remember at this point, pretty much all of humanity is gathered in the Mesopotamian Middle Eastern region there, and they all speak the same language. So of course, rather than obeying God's command to be fruitful, multiply, and go fill the earth, they all get together. They say, we want to build a tower. And they say to do this, to make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth, which leads God to dispersing them over the whole face of the earth because of their sin. Seriously, we are geniuses. Just amazing. But now there's a shift in scripture because we go from this this big, big picture story, very tight focus to one man and his family, a guy named Abraham. Now, the period from Abraham to King Saul runs from about 2000 BC to 1050 BC. For you super nerds, there's a whole big debate about when did the Exodus happen? It changes all these dates. Doesn't really matter this morning. If you care, you can talk to Stephen, you can talk to Josh Hayes, Chris Green, they they can blow your mind. It's wonderful. But today, you seem to know it's about a thousand years that we're talking about. So a thousand years here, God calls Abraham, promises he and his wife a son, despite their old age. So of course, they doubt God. Are you sensing a theme here? And Abraham sins by fathering a son with Hagar. But nonetheless, God continues to be faithful to his promises. And he blesses he and Sarah with a son, despite him being a hundred years old. And then we see this just pattern of, of sin continue in this whole family line, because Isaac, his son, blatantly favors one of his sons over the other one. 
And then his son, Jacob, who will become Israel, lies to his blind, dying father to steal his brother's blessing. And then Jacob has many sons, including Joseph. Well, Joseph's a little snot, so his brothers sell him into slavery, because that's what you do when little brother's that way. Really, really, look at this. These are terrible people. Like, you want to look at me like, what's wrong with you? Please stop acting this way. But this is who God's working through. This is who God is working through. And do you remember what Joseph declared later in life? He had a chance to take vengeance on his brothers. And he says this instead. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, how could he say that after all that had happened to him? Well, consider, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that at this point, Abraham's descendants number about 70 people, give or take. Now, how many families of 70 from 3,700 years ago made it? Anybody here? No, you don't know. I don't know. We don't know. But they survived. They survived. Not only that, but even though they're about to enter into a 400-year period of slavery, they're going to exist under the protection of the world's then most powerful empire. And they'll grow from 70 into this enormous nation. Because you remember God's promise to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So through all of this, sin, 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 doubt, 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 rebellion, all these things, the king is still with his people. He's still keeping his promise. So 400 years pass, slavery, Egypt, all these things. Then Moses is born, and he has to spend 40 years in Midian because of his sin. But then he leads God's people out of Egypt into the promised land. Now, what's interesting is that in leading God's people to the land of promise, he takes them to what's actually a pretty tiny strip of land, what we know as Israel. But it just so happens that this little piece of land is going to exist at the intersection of pretty much every Western empire for the next 2,000 years. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't. And I think we're going to see that because once they get there, they spend a few hundred years under what we know as the judges, and you have this just pattern over and over of sin, rebellion, doubt, deliverance. Sin, rebellion, doubt, deliverance. Da, 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 da. But the king preserves his people. So this brings us all the way up to 1050, and we get what we know as the United Kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon, all of whom sin, sin in some pretty spectacular ways. You get attempted murder, adultery, actual murder, greed, arrogance, idolatry, this whole package before the kingdom divides under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So you get Israel in the north, Judah in the south in 931. And for the next 400 years, both kingdoms will go through pretty much mostly terrible kings, a terrible time. But as this is happening, let's not forget what we just learned a minute ago, that God determines the times and boundaries of all nations for the purpose of bringing his people to himself. Because as this is going on with Israel, in the year 753, over in a little backwater area of Southern Europe, on the banks of a river called Tiber, a town is founded called Rome. That might be important in a minute, so hang on to that. Rome's coming back. But then back here in Israel, uh, 722, it's conquered by Assyria. And then Assyria will be conquered by Babylon in 612. And then 586, Babylon will sack Jerusalem and conquer Judah. This looks bad, right? Like, at this point, they've got to be wondering, I don't know if God's keeping his promise. I'm not so sure how I feel about this. Can we really trust him? Is he really, truly good to us? You know, are they conquered? Yes. But once again, they're under the protection, as it were, of all these great powerful empires, and they're kept alive and kept together as a people. And that's no small thing. Why? Because about 50 years after that, Babylon's going to be conquered by Persia. And Persia's ruled by a guy named King Cyrus. Now, why do we care about that this morning? Because 
God has something to say about Cyrus in Isaiah 45, which was written 200 years before he becomes king. And I want you to hear it. It's a long quote, but this is important. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So God says, I'm doing this. I'm going to raise up a pagan king 200 years before he's even on the throne. He won't know me and I'm gonna do it because I am ruler of kings on earth and I will do this that people will know I am the Lord. That's what it means to be ruler of kings on earth. You get to do those things. And during all this time, God is raising up prophets to remind his people, don't forget, don't forget. Remember the Lord, remember his promise, be faithful to him. He's going to keep his promise. But then something unexpected and probably not a little disturbing happens. God goes silent. For 400 years, he will not speak to his people. That would be unnerving if your entire existence as a nation has been premised on your God speaking to you. But despite his apparent silence, He's still working because he is still rulers of kings on earth. He's still governing the rising and falling of nations. Because you see, during those 400 years of apparent silence, he's still at work and he causes these things to happen. What we know from history as the Peloponnesian Wars will happen, and that's going to devastate Greece, just lay waste to it, which allows it to be conquered by a guy named Philip II. You may not know him, that's okay. You know his son because he was named Alexander. And when you conquer everything west of India, you get to be called the Great. So we have Alexander the Great. So he does that, and he establishes a common language all throughout. So everybody speaks Greek. They can all talk to each other. That's new. And then when Greece falls, Rome takes its place. And Rome is so powerful that throughout its entire empire, unique to history to that point, there's what we now know as the Roman peace, which meant that roads and travel and commerce and trade and all these things could happen on a scale human history had never seen before. This was a brand new thing. And here we are, and whew, that was a whole lot. By the way, you've just gotten three credit hours in Western Civ, so congratulations, <laughs> it's been a good day. Now, now what, was the, what was the point of all that? Did I just feel like the history nerds of Redeemer had been underserved? Well, maybe, but, but really, what I want you to see is that when the Bible says that Jesus is ruler of kings on earth, when it says that he governs the rising and falling of nations so that people will come to him, this is what it means. That's not just a cute phrase. It's not just a fun idea that has no meat on it. This is it. These are concrete, real things in history that have happened to bring about this very moment right here. Because you should be asking yourself, well, if all that's going on, what happened to his people? Where did they go? Well, they've become part of a very, very backwater province of the Roman Empire. Think like, like American Samoa. You say, I don't know where that is, exactly. That, that's where they're at at this point. They're just in the middle of nowhere relative to Rome. So what are they thinking? Is God still with us? Can we still trust him? Is he still keeping his promise? And maybe that's what you're here asking this morning. Where are you, Jesus? 
you still with me? Are you still for me? Is that the aching, longing cry of your heart today? Is that the ache of Advent that beats in your life? Because if it is, God's answer to you is the same answer he gave to his people then. Because you see, in a tiny town, in that little backwater province, without any earthly fanfare, this happens. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by his prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Oh, friends, God is not silent anymore. No, he pierced 400 years of silence with the cry of a baby. And this is no ordinary baby. The ruler of kings on earth has come. And he's coming to crush the serpent's head because he's a promise-keeping, trustworthy king all the way back to the garden. He's answering and he's keeping the promise here. And you see, if he can superintend all of history, if he can govern all these empires, all these things that have happened to bring about this moment, then you know what? We can trust him now. We can trust him with our lives now, with our hurts and our shortcomings and our sins and our failures, because he's still a promise-keeping king. And he has a very, very clear call for us. Follow me. And that's our second point, follow the king. Look back at our passage this morning, because I told you there's a kingly thread that runs through all of this. And we see that here, not only is Jesus ruler of kings on earth, it also tells us in verse six that he made us a kingdom. How does he do that? Well, we see the story of Jesus' life in the Gospels. It unfolds, he grows into a man, he lives a perfect life, and he calls people to follow him. He says, I'm gonna make you a kingdom, which is the same call that he extends to us. Come, follow me. Now, he is very clear that this call to do so is no trivial thing. He says that if we would come after him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him. And to do so may mean losing our very lives for whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. And you may be thinking, just like his original followers did, I don't know, that sounds kind of terrifying. Is it really worth it? Should I really follow him? Well, let me encourage you from one moment near the end of Jesus's earthly life that we often overlook. Do you remember a few weeks ago when Jamie was preaching from John 18 about Jesus's interaction with Pilate? And Jesus declared that his kingdom was not of this world because if it were, his men would have been fighting. If you didn't get a chance to hear that, please go back and listen. It's so good. It's so encouraging. But before that moment, there's another story just a little bit earlier in the chapter where Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe you remember it. Jesus is praying there with his disciples, and then Judas shows up with what Scripture tells us is a band of soldiers and some officers with lanterns and torches and weapons. And this is where all the Jesus movies get it wrong, because it's like two dudes that show up. This is a company of armed soldiers 
coming to take Jesus away. So what happens? They're gathered around him. They've got their weapons. And Jesus asks them, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And his response is, I am he. But don't miss what happens next because it says that when Jesus says, I am he, all these armed soldiers draw back and fall to the ground. What happened there? The ruler of kings on earth with a word has dropped the rulers of earth to their knees. It's almost like he's reminding his followers, guys, it's the dark of night right now, but dawn is coming. You can still follow me. And that's what he has to say to us because if we can trust him there, in that moment when he appears to be at his weakest, we can trust him now when he says, come, follow me, and I will make you a kingdom. And make no mistake, that is his call to us today. So what does it mean to follow Jesus, to follow the king? I think three things for us this morning. First, it means, as Jesus said, to repent of your sin, to believe in and trust him for salvation because the kingdom is at hand. And as king, it is his forgiveness that we need. It is his sacrifice, and it is his offering to us through the shed blood of the cross. Second, it means living your life as though he actually is king. It means to submit to, to obey, and to follow him in everything, to surrender every aspect of your life and of my life to him. Or as he put it, it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We could do nothing else. What a life. And third, it means that his life's mission becomes our life's mission. What is that? Well, we just read it. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. To proclaim Christ is to make disciples. Because you see, Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my men were, would have been fighting. If it were, I could summon the legions of heaven. But no, we're not sent into this world as conquerors. We're not sent into this world to establish human kingdoms. No, we're sent as ambassadors into a lost and dying world on behalf of a heavenly kingdom with a message of reconciliation. And it's this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Therefore, we implore you, we implore you this day, be reconciled to God. And if that mission, if that message, if it costs us our comfort, if it costs us our privileges, if it costs us our rights, even if it were to cost us our very lives, then as this morning's passage says, even so, amen. And you might say, Austin, this seems very hard. It is. It is very, very hard. In fact, in your own strength and in my own strength, it is quite literally impossible. But when Jesus said, with God, all things are possible, this is what he was talking about. He was talking about bringing us into his kingdom through his Holy Spirit and making us his ambassadors. And you remember, we've already seen that he's a trustworthy, promise-keeping king. Well, he is still that. And he says, if you will follow me, I have a few more promises for you. What are those? 
Well, they'll take us to our third and final point, hope in the king. Because once again, back in today's passage, in verse six, it says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. You see, when we trust the king, and when that trust is revealed in our following the king, then we can hope in him, no matter how hard it gets. Why? Because his reign and his dominion will have no end. And because he is still making and he is still keeping promises to us. What are those? Well, when he neared his earthly time, he said to his followers, I am with you always, all the way up to the end of the age. What does that look like for us? It looks like this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, we can hope in the king because while he is our king, he's not lording it over us. He's not a tyrant. No, he has secured our adoption as sons of God and given us his spirit in our hearts. So now the king welcomes you not only as his subjects, but as family. And finally, we can hope in the king because he is the ruler of kings on earth forever. You see, his kingdom will not end. And I'm reminded this morning of those indomitable words from the Hallelujah Chorus in Handel's Messiah. I promise I will not sing them but I do think they are an appropriate conclusion to our time together. Do you remember? Hallelujah, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of the Lord our God. King of kings forever and ever, hallelujah. And Lord of lords forever and ever, hallelujah. And he shall reign forever and ever, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hey, Redeemer, Merry Christmas.